Our message for today is titled Victory in Jesus. It comes from Psalm 60. And I want to start out with these fairly famous words. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Now, no doubt you're familiar with those lines written by Francis Scott Key. They were not penned in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War. Um, Key's poem actually hails from not from America's high times, but one of its lowest. The star-spangled banner he saw was not a symbol of American dominance, but of mere survival in one of the darkest moments of the War of 1812. Well, that leads us then to Psalm 60, which mentions also a banner as a sign of survival when the invading army is advancing and routing the front lines. As the tides of defeat rises around them, surviving soldiers turn to look for the banner. It's kind of a place to return, a place to regroup, to escape, and to fight another day. And while the banner still waves, hope remains, even as odds mount. Now, Psalm 60 is the seventh and final psalm in the sequence of Psalms 54 to 60, which mentions seven specific enemies of David. Number one, relatives from his own tribe. Two, a closest friend. Three, neighboring Philistines. Four, King Saul. Five, rulers of the land. Six, murderous henchmen. And seven, enemies from distant lands. And in each Psalm, 54 to 60, David is under threat. Yet each ends with a note of David's confidence in God. Now, we learn the particular context of Psalm 60 in the little superscript. It says, for the music director, according to Shushan Edith, a mikdam, and a mikdam was kind of a cover or a lid or an emblem of which David was to teach when he fought with Aram Naharehim and Aram Zobah and Joab returned and killed 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now, friends, if we only knew First uh, Chronicles 18 and Second Samuel with this uh, refrain, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went, we might assume that David just kind of rolled from victory to victory. But Psalm 60 gives us a remarkable window into the fears and the uncertainties of that moment, as well as into the spiritual dynamic that eventually led to victory after victory, but not without painful setbacks and fear and distress along the way. Psalm 60 comes in the dark days when David has been caught off guard by Edom. Remember, that's a country to the south. Uh, That's where Esau came from, suffering a devastating wave of losses. David and the nation are kind of undone at this point. Shock and embarrassment and fear made them feel kind of rejected by God. Now, as we're going to see in verses 1, 2, and 3, David and his people are quite anxious. I mean, was God not supposed to protect them? And yet in this psalm, in this painful defeat, David sees a banner still flying. Hope is not lost yet. And he falls back to the banner. Again, Psalm 60 then captures a moment in history when David finds himself in the tension between present darkness, that'll be in verses 1, 2, and 3, and then the light of God's promises, which are found in verses 6, 7, and 8. Now, it's not only David's expression of self-humbling in that moment and the rehearsing of God's word and a fresh plea for help, but they are also here for instruction. And it's not just for God's people or God's people in David's day, but it's instruction for every generation since, including ours today. So what kind of timeless lessons can we draw for our times of devastation from Psalm 60? 
Here's the first thing I want to suggest to you, and that's that hope begins with the sovereignty of God. Now, sovereignty is kind of a big word to remind us that God knows everything past, present, and future. See, but whatever the devastation, whether it might be a cancer diagnosis, the loss of a loved one or a job, or going through a divorce or separation or disease or depression or or hope, I mean, none of this does not begin by pretending that God didn't see it coming or couldn't have stopped it. A God so small that he couldn't have presented it, prevented it will be of no real comfort at all. So David does not begin with a few exercises in shrinking God or trying to get him off the hook. Rather, he owns God's absolute sovereignty over the defeat of Israel's army. He acknowledges a God big enough to actually pray for help. Now, Psalm 60, the first three verses say, O God, you've rejected us, you've broken us, you have been angry, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its cracks for its sways. You've made your people experience hardship. You've given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Well, <laughs> David begins with, oh God, and then he says it about eight or nine times. You, he, he does so not with his finger pointed to heaven in accusation, but with his hands kind of spread out, prostrate on his knees. Oh God, you, 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 you. I mean, he's humbled here. He's not arrogant. Now, why is this? It's because God not only rules over the greatest triumphs of his people, but also their greatest losses. He stands directly behind the good, as it were, and indirectly over the evil. So even as David calls this military defeat quaking earth in a cup of staggering, and even as he counts it as if God has rejected the nation, David does not come in cynicism, but in humility. So our first lesson is this, in our devastation, in our difficult times, hope begins with the sovereignty, in other words, the complete authority of God. Now, second, our God gives us a banner to run to. Now, like Francis Scott Key saw the banner flying over Fort McHenry and knew there was still hope, so too in the midst of devastating news, David sees a banner still flying. This is verses 4 and 5. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth, that your beloved may be rescued. Save us with your right hand and answer us. So in other words, friends, all hope is not lost. But the question is, what is this banner that David sees? I mean, where does he run? Well, it's not a star-spangled banner. It's not a cloth waving in the breeze at the top of a pole. In one sense, the banner certainly is God himself. But more specifically here, it's something that God has set up, according to this psalm. Now, one way to say it would be that the banner is prayer. So then, this very psalm is David running to the banner, or the banner of prayer. It's kind of like back in Exodus 17, 15, and 16, when it says it's like reaching up with a hand upon the throne of the Lord. So here, David is asking for help. In particular, the plea to God comes in verses 9 to 12. But before we get there, we have an even more specific answer as to what this banner is. Verse 6 is kind of the hinge point of this psalm. I mean, verses 1 to 3 is devastation. Verses 4 and 5 is hope uh, uh, that there is a banner. And then in verses 6 to 8 is specificity. It's God has spoken. So did you get that? God has spoken. And that changes everything. In your fears, disappointments, and anxieties, do you fly to the banner 
of what God has spoken. There's an old hymn of the church that says his oath, his covenant, his blood-bought promises support us in the overwhelming flood. In other words, he has spoken. The question is, friends, do you run to the banner? In your fears or your disappointments, in your anxieties, do you, do you fly to the banner of what God has spoken? Now, this is not a star-spangled flag on a pole, but to the audible banner of God's own words to us. Not to an image banner, but to a word banner. I mean, do you ask in the midst of all of your problems and your devastation, your fears, what does God have to say? Well, friends, I can't say this often enough, but very practically, the Bible, that's what we're talking about. And the Bible is no ordinary book. These are the very words of God to us, his people, a record of his words to his people in the past and a treasury of his words to us now in the present. Now, these are not dead words. They're living and active by the power of God himself in his Holy Spirit. So I'm going to ask you today, friends, how well do you know this book? How well do you know this treasure chest, not just applicable to our problems, but designed especially for them? Do you come to this book when the arrows come your way? Do you fall back first to God's banner, or are you running somewhere else? Well, third, God's action is decisive, and our action matters. Now, there are glorious exceptions when our action is not always required. In fact, there are moments when we dare not even act except to watch in faith. I mean, it makes me think about Exodus chapter 14, uh, where just before God parts the Red Sea, he says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Or another one of my favorite psalm verses, Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. See, David does have this moment of being still and knowing that God is God when he rehearses God's promises and then bows in prayer. But then David does not stand by passively. You see, there's another battle. And so he sends Joab and Abishai and the rest of the army. The psalm ends then with a prayer that leads to action and a burst of confidence. When David asks who in verses 9 to 12, he knows exactly who. So listen again to these words. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you yourself not rejected us, God? And will you not go out with your armies, God? Oh, give us help against the enemy, for rescue by man is worthless. Through God we will do valiantly, and it is he who will trample our enemies. In other words, we dare not go forth in our own strength. Verse 12 reminds us, through God, we will do valiantly. In other words, get the victory. It is he who will trample down our enemies. And I hope you notice that we, he sequence, we shall do and he will trample. We act in faith, but God's action is decisive. And our acting will be in vain unless he acts. But understand this, friends, our decisiveness Uh, of God's action does not make us passive, nor do we act in our own strength. So in our devastation, running to God includes, I'm going to suggest at least four things. One, acknowledging his sovereignty. And two, flying to the banner of his word. And three, trusting his words. And four, turning to him in prayer, asking for help, (laughs) basic and yet powerful. And this is our entire life. 
This is the dynamic of the Christ follower's life, individually, corporately, again and again. This is what we do every Sunday in worship. And this ought to be the pattern for each of our days. Friends, let every fear and threat turn you back to God, to hear him, to trust in him, to ask him for help, and then to act in reliance on him. Well, fourth, God protects his own without fretting or sweating. See, it's the bigness, calmness, and power of our God in verses 6 to 8 that leads David's confidence uh, in verses 9 to 12. Now, verses 6 to 8 said, God has spoken in his holiness. I will triumph and divide up Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. I'll throw my sandal over Edom. Shout loud, Felicia, because of me. Now, again, looking back at verses 6 and 7, it mentions parts of the land that God has promised to his people, going way, all the way back to the days of Jacob. The rehearsing God's claim on these lands reminds David in his need of God's unbreakable commitment to Israel and that God would not let Edom take his lands. In fact, God calls the neighboring lands his. See, worry as David may have over Edom, Edom doesn't make God sweat. What does God say? He'll wash his feet in Moab. He'll fling his shoe on Edom. And Philistia too will be his. I mean, this vision of God and his power without fretting or sweating, calmly bringing his enemies into submission with his feet resting on their backs, is the heart of what moves David and the nation from fear to faith. You see, in Jesus, we too now know so much more than David about this God and his salvation. As we come to God's banner, the place where we flee flee in danger, and the banner of God's word tells us of the banner of the cross. I love the way the book of Hebrews puts it in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. In Psalm 60, verse 3, David said about God's will in allowing Israel's first loss to Edom, you have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. But friends, remember too at the Lord's table, Jesus also gives us wine to drink that awakens us and brings reminders of his word and makes us rejoice. It's at the Lord's table in Jesus, our God reminds us people who feel rejected that they are in fact, beloved, and with him always comes the victory.